Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Alrighty, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Darren Mitchell here and uh, a very, very special welcome to Dr. Christopher Croner, all the way from Chicago. How are you, my friend? Darren, I am doing wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to be of service today. Excellent. It's um, We've been connected a little while now on LinkedIn and we've had a conversation prior today and I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're going to talk about all things sales but from the perspective of hiring salespeople. now if you're a sales leader right now listening to this you have probably had an experience where you've hired a bad salesperson and hopefully out of today's podcast uh, we're going to dispel a lot of myths and help you change that and uh, turn it into hiring phenomenal salespeople <laughs> moving forward so chris really looking forward to this conversation um before we jump into the topic love for you to give us, give the listeners a little bit of a background in terms of the Chris Croner story. And I know you've got a, a clinical psychology background, so i um, love to hear a little bit about your background to set a bit of context for today's conversation. Of course, thank you. Yes, my PhD is in clinical psychology. As I was uh, working toward that degree, I also did some work in industrial organizational psychology. I wanted to kind of create my own focus in that area. When I got my PhD, my first position out of school was at a firm called Whitmer and Associates here in the suburbs of Chicago. Whitmer and Associates specialized in executive assessment. So I'm sure you've seen sometimes when a company will hire uh, a new VP or a new president, they'll bring in an industrial psychologist to sit down with that person, do sometimes a two hour interview, a job simulation exercise, sometimes a little intelligence testing, personality testing, uh, really a very rigorous process. They wanted to design something as rigorous as that for salespeople, because of course, hmm. sales is the lifeblood of any company. So they yep. brought me on board to do that back in again, October of 2002. Since that time, all I have eat, breathed and slept has been the topic of how do you find what differentiates the highest performing hunters. Sales Drive officially got started. My, my company, Sales Drive, got started in 2005. We published Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again in 2006. That's with myself and my business partner, Mr. Richard Abraham. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've worked with over, gosh, 1,400 companies around the world. And again, it's my pleasure to be of service to you and your audience in any way that I can today. Awesome. Awesome. So it's interesting you mentioned they um, uh, organizations come in and do the assessments of executives. And I know having read parts of the book and, and looked at a lot of the videos you've put out that uh, often sales is a little bit of a uh, forgotten uh, forgotten discipline, if you like, and yes. to have to have an organisation now applying some focus on what it takes to be a great salesperson, specifically a hunter, because there's a lot of people out there that like the uh, the account management side of uh, sales, which is just managing accounts. But to get to get good hunters, um, was there anything specifically that prompted you? Because I know you said from 2002 you've been doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, was there anything that was there a, like a catalyst or a an event that said to you, hmm, this is something that we need to really look at and look at it, if I might say this, it's, it's almost now become your life's work from 2002. This is like the last 20 years. So yes. um, was there an event that uh, that took place that led you down this path? Or was it just the fact you saw, hey, there's a there's a gap in the marketplace here and we need to fill it? It was really the idea of the gap in the marketplace. That's what the, the, the firm Whitmer and Associates was exploring at that time. 
um, I was uh, at an event, uh, the Illinois Psychological Association heard a speech by Neil Whitmer, uh, who is the, the president of Whitmer Associates, obviously, and was about um, how do you find high performance salespeople? What do companies do to find those individuals? And I began sp speaking with him after that really had an interest in me in terms of what is it that leads somebody to be successful in a role as a salesperson, you know, coming from the world of clinical psychology. If you think about somebody who's going to be successful in sales, I really don't think, Darren, uh, that there is a position that is more psychological, psychologically demanding than someone being successful in sales. If you think about somebody who's going to go out, knock on a door, whether that's in person or over the phone, if you will, mm. get the door slammed in their face, then have to knock on the next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction. Psychologically, yeah. that's a very special person that we're talking about. And that's when I really got interested. What leads in terms of the, yeah, the idea of the, the resilience and the grit and the hardiness of, of someone who's going to be successful in that role. What differentiates them? That's where mm -hmm. it personally got interesting to me. And then as well, conducting the interviews of candidates uh, yeah. in that, that type of a role. You know, when you're interviewing any candidate for any position, candidates are always on their best behavior. That's to be expected. But salespeople, as I'm sure you've seen, can sometimes be very skillful at that. So they know the right things to say in the interview. Sometimes they're even using sales techniques on the interviewer. And in particular, when you have a position that can be very... Um, uh, time sensitive to, to fill, it can feel in the moment, like finally, you know, the cavalry's here because the person's saying all the right things. Well, that was enjoyable to me, Darren, because again, as a psychologist sitting down with that person and having kind of to see through the facade, if you will, that, uh, that anyone put, puts, puts forward in an interview, but in particular, sometimes uh, some of the most skilled salespeople, when you have somebody who's presenting themselves to you as someone who's really an effective salesperson, they can sell. Your key question, if you want a hunter though, is will they sell? And that's where the fun, if you will, was in it for, for me. You know, how do you differentiate between someone who can do it versus someone who truly will? Looking at, you know, the person's previous actions, all their previous positions they've held, their behaviors in those roles, and hmm. using that information to predict how they're going to perform going forward. That's really what was enjoyable to me. And then just continuing to expand that, continuing to expand on the idea of, well, you know, if you look at these characteristics that lead to success, what, what are the most important and what makes them the most important? Are they teachable? Are they not? And how do we come up with a rigorous scientific process that we can use consistently to filter those candidates, if you will. So that's what was enjoyable yeah. to me. Well, it's, it's interesting you say, you know, the, the difficulty of, of as certainly as a sales leader, looking at potential salespeople, and we'll talk about the cost of bad highs in a second, but you're so, you're so correct because even my own experience trying to bring people on into a sales team, there were so many account executives or potential hunter salespeople that talked a really good game and they were very impressive. Their CV was was very schmick. Um, mm -hmm. They had a lot of uh, tangible uh, uh, results that they could demonstrate and they they talked a really good game in the in the in the interview. And then when you get them on board, you perhaps think, well, they've they've created a great impression, but that was probably the euphoria of the impression because when they get into the actual role itself, yep. they're uh, they're not as good as they thought they could be and I learned a number of lessons around that and that is starting to think about what are some of the characteristics to look for which we'll talk about today as well mm -hmm. in that sometimes people will be great in the interview and not great in the actual selling role and vice versa there might have been some people who were quite nervous in an interview mm -hmm. uh, they might have had the track record but they couldn't necessarily articulate because maybe they put too much pressure on themselves in the interview process because mm -hmm. they really wanted to work for this organization but if you could see through that and give them an opportunity, they often ended up being really, really phenomenal salespeople who would have sustainability. So I'm glad that you've actually created the drive test because it's going to help sales leaders uh, be a little bit more 
uh, specific in terms of the characteristics they're looking for, but also backed by science to give you a higher probability of getting the right people. Yes. And that's really our focus is, you know, applying that science to it, if you will, because you're exactly right. You can get people in the interview, someone who's, say, very experienced in sales uh, that lacks the characteristic that we'll be talking about, that non-teachable characteristic, that drive characteristic that can yeah. present very well versus someone who, again, maybe has high drive, but doesn't present as well in the interview. Both yeah. of those folks on their first day, everybody wants to make a good first impression. So the person who has the experience is going to be able to do that a little bit more effectively on the first day. That's fine. But that's the first day. But now watch them over time. That high drive person is going to be watching and learning. And if you were to chart their performance, you're going to be seeing that high drive person start to supersede the person who is maybe very experienced but lacks that passion, if you will. So you're exactly right. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost real, um, reminded me of that uh, situation leadership that Ken Blanchard come up with the, the first sector where you've got somebody who is uh, really highly committed, but has maybe a low level of competence in that particular organization, but they're eager to learn. But over time, they start to become um, <laughs> a little bit less engaged and maybe they start to get a bit of a side of, oh, this is not the organization that I thought it was. And therefore their motivation starts to wane. But how we can remove some of that and get people a fast start and get on the upward trajectory is a, is a really important thing. So there's a couple of questions around this I wanted to wanted to delve into. One is the the bad hire and the cost of bad hires. But before I ask that question, in terms of your experience uh, starting Sales Drive, and I guess going out into the marketplace, because that that's almost a sales opportunity in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Was was how talk to me how about how challenging or otherwise it was to get organisations who historically have probably got great sales leaders who for all intents and purposes have probably prided themselves on bringing in great people and say, Hey, I know how to hire great people. Look at my track record. Mm-hmm. How did you actually get over the, I guess the initial hump of saying, you know what, we don't need, we don't need a, we don't need a psychological test because we intuitively uh, can bring in great salespeople. What just talked about the, the, the original, um, I guess, evolution of, of sales drive and, and what sort of challenges you may have had in terms of getting this into the marketplace. Of course, of course. So you're exactly right. Relative to background, it's not uncommon that you're going to find somebody who's a very effective sales leader who's done a very good job of hiring salespeople. And they'll feel that they have a great track record or feel like during the interview process, they've got a golden gut, if you will. Generally, though, when the person experiences a bad hire, you know, someone who looked great in the interview, who promised all the right things and just broke their heart thereafter, that's where they start to pay attention. You know, frequently, when I give a presentation, Darren, I'll start it out just by asking folks to raise their hand if they've ever felt, felt burned by a candidate who looked great in the interview but ended up underperforming. And people raise their hand, but they do so with such intensity and enthusiasm and frustration because they typically remember <laughs> one person. And that's generally the catalyst for any given company or any given person is, okay, you know, I, I've, I've been burned by somebody. Is there a repeatable process in place that we can, we can add to our hiring mix, if you will, to make sure that never happens again? And yeah. again, uh, in terms of using an assessment, there are many assessments that have been out there for many years. So companies are used to having some sort of a tool in many cases uh, right. that they will use. So it wasn't a completely new idea to them to have some sort of an assessment to use. But people were often asking me, well, okay, Dr. Cronin, you've got, you know, there's so many assessments out there. What makes this one that you're offering a little bit different? And we designed the drive test to be very different, specifically to focus on the hunters, of course, but to do so in a way that looks at specifically the non-teachable characteristics that we uniquely have identified as important mm-hmm. in that role. And that does so in a way that eliminates 
faking. Again, when people come to us, that's usually when they have been frustrated. And one of the areas that will be frustrated is, you know, I did try an assessment. I did try a test at one point, but candidates were able to fake their way through it. You know, it frustrated yeah. me too. What about your test? How do you avoid that? And that's when I start, when I start to get traction, if you will. And it just starts to build from there. And then of course, writing our book, Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, back in what, 2006, the second edition came out in January of this year. That got traction as well. People seeing that book and learning that, you know, the consistent process, if you will, that they can use. Yeah. So it was really sort of a snowball effect mm. over time. And it's really a privilege now when I can talk to people who have seen me through either podcasts or videos or um, all the other information that, that we've put online, they have an awareness of what we're doing, but just kind of, again, want to take our process and uh, meld it, if you will, and combine it with, with what they're doing to kind of take themselves to the next level. I really just enjoy teaching this and being of service to them. Well, it's, and it's a great, uh, it is a great service because when you think about the cost of a, a bad hire, I mean, and not so much just in, in dollars, but in time and what time represents in terms of lost opportunity, lost sales, lost revenue. Um, I mean, I know, I know in the book, it talks about uh, anything from six early six figures to write up to a million dollars. And I know there's a video you put out on LinkedIn not long ago that talked about a wealth management company identifying that a bad hire costs them close to a million dollars. Now yep. for any business that is that is a huge cost. And even in Australia you talk to a lot of sales leaders and organizations and it's anything from you know 120 to 150, 250 on average by the time you yep. go through the process, onboard them and realize, you know what, I don't have the right person. I've made a mistake. Now I've got to go back to back to the uh, the starting point, and it's it's frustrating, very frustrating. Yep. Yep. Um, have you have you understood? Have you noticed that there's uh, a lot of organisations that, when it comes to business cases, they say we cannot afford to have a bad hire. Therefore, we've got to try and minimise any risk and and make sure we get the right person. Hence, it's easier for you to sell the the sales drive. Um, story and the sales drive op uh, offer. Oh, certainly, and and there there there's there's a whole gamut, just as you suggest. You know, it's amazing how you know we talk about the cost of an underperformer, six to seven figures. So many companies have just looked at that as well. That's the cost of doing business. You know, salespeople are just tough to hire. It's just too tough to figure it out. No, it's not. There's a consistent process you can use. And yes, when companies do come to us, it's oftentimes I'll ask them at the beginning when we when we speak. What initially attracted you to the idea of sales aptitude testing? And they'll say, well, you know, we made mistakes, Dr. Kerner, quite frankly. And we'll yeah. talk about those and the frustration that they've caused. And just, just give them the opportunity to, to say, okay, you know, you may have had some challenges in the past, but when you start using this consistent process to assess candidates and to interview candidates, you're going to, you know, dramatically reduce those mistakes, if you will, and bring on people who have that natural tendency to want to do well, almost like that kid in school that just has to get an A. When you bring on somebody with that attitude, you know, the company, there's that saying that company becomes the people you hire, if you will. Mm. And when you consistently start bringing those folks on board and as you, you know, with natural attrition in your current sales organization, and as you're adding them, you're gradually going to think of a bell curve of performance. You know, any given company when we come uh, to them at first has the bell curve of performance. They've got a lot of people who are, you know, if you score a person from say, you will talk about the drive characteristic, but score them on drive from a one to a five, a lot mm. of threes. And then some, yeah. you know, some twos and some fours, and if you will, and some ones and a few, a few fives. And then again, as natural attrition occurs, and as you bring people on board, the goal, as you can imagine, is to move that bell curve to the right. Because we find, again, as you start to add a higher drive people, a higher drive salesperson is going to produce about 30% more than someone who's average in drive. Yeah. So you can imagine, as you could gradually move that bell curve to the right, uh, the performance is going to, to be there as well. So it's about having the patience to use that process on the hiring side. And again, I'm always happy to help our clients, you know, in terms of what questions do you ask in the interview? 
Um, how do you screen a resume? What do you look for, say, in a LinkedIn profile? How do you conduct a phone screen? How do you onboard people? All those extra things that I can do. Uh, as, yeah. as we've discussed, it's been my, my life's work. So I'm happy to share as much as that with any of our clients and with you today. No, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, the one question that just came to mind then, and, and we've all been through uh, an interesting time for <laughs> the last couple of years with, with COVID. Yes. Um, have you noticed in your work there's been any impact on uh, this on the, not so much hiring sales, but the 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 way that salespeople work? Has there been any impact any impact that COVID has had, which kind of adjusts a little bit the work that you do, or how organisations are going about hiring? Oh, certainly. Um, and if you look at the assessment process, you know what one of the biggest impacts, of course, of COVID is people having to be during, especially during the uh, the height of the pandemic in, indoors and trying to operate from home. So on the assessment side, well, that was always delivered uh, to the person's, you know, directly to the person's laptop or, or smartphone, et cetera. So that wasn't an issue. But in terms of the follow-up interview, people getting good with Zoom calls, you know, thing, things of that nature, um, that certainly changed. So being good with the interviews, uh, you know, interviews over Zoom, that's a special skill that people had to develop. And I think that an interview over Zoom is certainly, um, uh, much, much more effective than say interviews over the um, over the internet were maybe 20 years ago when I, when I yeah. first started doing this work yeah. and catch a lot more nuance. Nothing beats the one-on-one the -on -one interview, but I think that, sure. you know, those are two of the primary areas where people had to get a little bit better on the interviewing side. And then in terms of the sales side, it's just one tool that people needed to use better. You know, how do we, mm -hmm. how do we conduct uh, a sales call over the phone? How do we conduct it over, over Zoom now? And be getting better at that skill. But that's, that's just a tool. That's something you can teach. You can teach uh, the use of a tool like that or relationship skills or things of that nature. But that underlying characteristic, Darren, that drive characteristic, the person who has those three unteachable elements, irrespective of the situation, they're going to figure it out because they're going to want to figure it out for that mentality. <laughs> and when you look for that mentality, those other things will work themselves out, we find. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talking about drive, and I know that the uh, the, the the test that you have is called the drive test. So um, uh, three essential characteristics that successful hunter salespeople have. Um, talk talk through those, and I'd, I'd like to kind of deep dive into each of those in terms of what specifically we need to be looking for. Um, mm -hmm. So that and look, even if even if the organisations that might be listening to this right now um, uh, don't necessarily reach out to you as an example, they can still start thinking about I need to look better for these sort of characteristics in my potential sales bill. So can you take us through the three essential characteristics that you've identified as being essential to being a successful salesperson? Of course, of course. And a question we'll get off often get in relation to that too is, well, how did you come up with those? How did you derive those, those three? What universe did you take those from? And again, it really began with that work, as I mentioned back in 2002, looking at everything that had been published academically there and over the last, what, 85, almost 90 years now, uh, in terms of what is it that makes a successful salesperson. At the same time, uh, our own work, doing those behavioral interviews with sales candidates and circling back with their managers after that to find out who really does become successful. Yeah. And when we looked at all of that data, again, we found that many of the characteristics that most people would expect to be important were still important. Characteristics like persuasiveness, that was important. So were relationship skills. So were even organizational skills. But above and beyond any of those by far were these three non-teachable characteristics that continue to stand out and differentiate, particularly the highest performing hunters. And again, the first one is what we call the need for achievement. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the need for achievement in a salesperson, we're speaking about a person who wants to do well simply for the sake of doing well. So the salesperson who's high in need for achievement, they just naturally want to set the bar high, if you will. They want to jump over that. 
then they want to set it even higher again the next time. So they're constantly focused on producing excellence simply for the sake of excellence. Think about that kid in school that just wants to get high marks, as I mentioned. It's that mentality, <laughs> excellence for its own sake. Um, the research shows wow. that characteristic need for achievement, important also for entrepreneurs. People have to yeah. kind of get up every morning and make it happen, and there's nobody standing over them watching them. So again, that, that's the first piece we focus on. It can almost be counterintuitive at times because people don't think of that when they think of someone who's going to do well in sales, but that is the most important need for achievement. The second piece- can I just uh, ask you on that one? Because you said that all three are non-teachable. And that's a really interesting point because if I just reflect on my own sales leadership career mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the organizations I work with, what they would try to do is I would try to create incentives to motivate people to increase their level of performance. And they'll put on, you know, salesperson of the month, salesperson of the year, number one club. They'll give a higher level of commission thinking that's going to motivate yeah. these people to take the take their performance to a whole new level but interestingly it didn't so it kind of it kind of makes sense that these guys just have an intuitive desire to continue to push themselves and always know there's another level to get to yep no you're exactly right and a related area of frustration that many companies have as we talk about in the book are those individuals whom we describe as flatliners i'm sure you've seen they give to a certain level of production and all of a sudden they just level off yeah. and you're left asking, wait a minute, you know, I know this person can sell. What happened? Why are they just turning in the same performance all of a sudden, quarter after quarter? What's going on? Well, again, oftentimes with those same companies, we'll ask them, well, what do you do on the hiring side? What sorts of candidates do you look for? And that person will say to us, well, we want somebody who's motivated by money. Or we want someone who has, say, external pressure, say, a mortgage, a couple car payments, kids in school, external things that motivate them. Well, the yeah. challenge when we get somebody who's just motivated by money or who is motivated more by external pressures is eventually, of course, those pressures are going to be relieved. And essentially, mm -hmm. they will get up to the level of production that relieves those pressures. And now they've achieved the lifestyle they were really going after. And now they know what they need to, quote, unquote, phone in quarter after quarter just to maintain. Yeah. Whereas... The person motivated by need for achievement will continue to excel. They'll continue to produce. Money is still important to them to be sure, but they look at money the same way that, say, a great athlete looks at points on the scoreboard. It's yep. how they show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself. So it's still important to them, but they also look at things like this recognition is important to them. You know, they want to do well for its own sake. So getting the person motivated by need for achievement is really the key that, that we find in getting somebody who's going to produce and then produce higher and higher and higher. So... Yeah, and you, and you mentioned all of these three are non-teachable. So mm -hmm. are we saying that these are part of somebody's innate characteristics and our job as sales leaders is to find them? Yes. Or yeah. is, there, is there any, have you seen any examples where uh, maybe two out of the three characteristics this person has and there is an element that you can improve, that you can work with somebody? So is can it be coached into somebody or mentored in somebody or it's simply, you know what, you've either got it or you don't generally you know for practical purposes you said that you have it or you don't um, oh, okay yeah oh absolutely so we start out with need for achievement again the second the second characteristic is competitiveness and yep. the competitive salesperson we find really wants to do two things number one they want to be the best on their team they're always comparing their performance to their peers because they just need to know how they stack up but number two they want to win that client or that customer over to their point of view because to them uh psychologically darren they look at that sale as a bit like a contest of wills and the third piece, of course, is optimism. 
And that's the salesperson's sense of certainty that they will succeed, as well as, again, their resilience to remain uh, strong, to hang in there when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson just has to deal with. So yes, we can work on optimism. You know, if you look at uh, Martin Seligman's learned optimism, we can work, look at that in terms of working on it from a clinical perspective, but most companies don't have the money to put somebody on the couch uh, mm -hmm. to really kind of build you know, the, their, their optimism or their resilience. So for all intents and purposes, especially with need for achievement and competitiveness, past the age of 21, 22, there's not much we can really do to change it. You're exactly right. Either it's there or it's not. And unfortunately, we find the research shows drive, those three characteristics we collectively refer to as drive, past the age of 21, 22, we can't change them, but they're the easiest for a candidate to fake in the interview and the most difficult to accurately rate. Wow. So with that, because you mentioned the drive test, it's, mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether this is the word, it's unfakeable or non-fakeable. You can't, you can't, you can't fake it. Um, I'm fascinated. How did how did you how did you do that? How did you actually how can you tell whether somebody's trying to pretend to mm -hmm. be um, ultra competitive or having a need for achievement that um, that you say no no that's actually incorrect. <laughs> Good question. Yes, yeah, so you can imagine if a candidate's taking an, an assessment and a question says something like you know I am ultra competitive. Rate this from one not at all like you to five exactly like you. Well, if the yeah. candidate's applying for a sales job chances are if they want the job, they're going to say they're a four or five. Exactly. And that's why, again, many assessments can be easy, particularly on the sales side where the person has in a high stake situation and they want to present themselves. Well, it can be pretty easy for them to figure out what, what they really need to say. Therefore, we use a question format on the drive test designed to eliminate faking called forced choice. Right. So for each question on the drive test, the candidate gets a series of three statements, all of which are worded very positively. So a question, for example, may say something like, I consider myself a leader. I have great relationship skills. Uh, I'm very organized. Okay. Now, which of these is most like you and which one is least like you? Right. So as you can imagine, that now forces the candidate to make some very difficult distinctions, but then it gives us a much better sense of their real priorities. And as they're working their way through the test, then we're constantly monitoring their consistency as they respond to those questions, because as you can imagine, if they do try to fake the test, it's going to be very difficult for them to remember consistently what they ranked most and least across the entire assessment. So <laughs> it's designed to be very robust in that regard. We actually had a team of psychologists look at each statement, each of the three statements on each question, and make sure they were all equal on what psychologists call social desirability. So that was very much the goal. And then we're monitoring their consistency as they respond to them. That's how we, how we look at that and make sure that, again, we're reducing as much as possible the odds of the person faking the assessment. Wow. So you can't game the system, which is interesting. And is it like most, uh, most I guess, psych profiles where you're asking throughout the, throughout the assessment, you're asking very similar questions, but perhaps worded slightly differently so that you it forces you to intuitively respond as if this is who I am rather than this is who I like to be. I like to be perceived to be. And therefore it's hard to, um, hard to fake it. Exactly. So we're going after, you know, if you think about a characteristic, like say relationship skills or organizational skills, we're going after those with similar sentences. And we're, again, we're constantly looking at, you know, how is the person ranking that particular sentence most like them or least like them? And if there's variation again and again throughout the assessment, ah, that's where the consistency flag gets thrown up. And that's the benefit of using that format. When you really do need to get the straight story from a candidate because you're frustrated with candidates who have presented themselves well in the preliminary stages, gotten into your interview and thinking, wait a minute, why am I sitting down with this 
person that really probably is not the best fit for this type of a role. That's the benefit the company has is it's sort of like an insurance policy, if you will, to make sure that the people that we're bringing on board have that non-teachable drive piece. And it's all, it's all geared around specifically the hunter salesperson. So it's, it's for those organizations that have requirements to drive new business, new labels. Um, and they want, they want the definitive hunter to go out and knock down doors and, and bring in, bring in new business. Exactly. Or in some cases, uh, hunt within existing accounts, as some of our clients will say. They want to grow those existing accounts aggressively, and that's fine too. We still give you a score of the person's potential on the farmer side as well. But frankly, when most companies come to us, it's because they're challenged looking for somebody in that hunter role. Because again, that is the role that people, again, generally have the most frustrating experiences with, with candidates, as we've discussed, that look good in the interview, but get faced with those psychological challenges and then back down time and again. So there are many things that companies can look for in addition to the assessment and looking for candidates with the right background. You know, how, how do you find somebody who's going to have a background where they're going to hit the ground running if you won't start producing rel- relatively quickly? Yeah. So we give yeah. them guidance yeah. in that regard too. Yeah. And are there, are there, I know they're, they're the three essential traits for hunters as part mm-hmm. of the assessment and part of the work that you do. Are there other elements that sort of um, complement those three or is everything just honed in on, on, those, on those key three? Good question. Yes, there are. There are other skills that we look at that we found to be important in just about every sales position that we've looked at. So we also look at confidence. Does that person have a thick skin? Can they deal with rejection, the the rejection inherent in the position? Number two, we look at persuasion. Does the person enjoy selling and negotiating? Will they move that sale from the first call to the second call to the close? We look at relationship skills. Is the person comfortable reaching out to other people socially? And then yes, we look at organization. Is this the sort of person who enjoys uh, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, if you will? So all of those other core skills, as we describe them, are also important and complementary to the person's drive characteristics. But it's important to keep in mind that whereas past the age of 21, 22, we can build the other core skills, we can grow persuasion, we can grow relationship, we can grow organization. We can't do much to change drive. So it's all about hiring for the piece that we cannot change and then potentially developing or, uh, or growing the person in those areas that, that we can develop. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Because when you think about, and, and I look at uh, successful salespeople that I've had and, and just reflecting on those three traits, uh, every single one of them had those. And mm-hmm. you're right, I didn't teach them. So I, I didn't have to motivate. And one of the one of the frustrating things for, for my experience running running sales teams is there were some sales teams that uh oh let's just expect that they expected me to be the Monday motivational speaker to mm. to wind them up and let them go and, and motivate, but it didn't work. It lasted to the to the till after the the motivational session that I ran and all of a sudden they're back to normal habits. Um mm. when I look at the successful people, they're all self-driven. They wanted to compete and it wasn't necessarily competing always with a, another organization. They were competing with themselves to get better. Yep. They were competing with the customer to, to convince them to, and they're all doing it from a perspective of servitude because they knew they could add value to the organization. And the other thing is they were optimistic. Now, not, not optimistic to the point where it was unrealistic they're mm-hmm. optimistic to say, you know what, I will find a way and we will find a way because this is the best, this is the best solution for this particular customer. Yes. Um, fascinating, fascinating. And all the other, and they are, they also had those four other characteristics, the ability to organize themselves. So just looking at the way that they planned their accounts, the the yes. detail around their opportunity planning, the yeah. relationships they had with with their organization, the way that they could persuade, not just externally, but most importantly, internally. Mm-hmm. And that had a confidence. And it was a quiet confidence. It wasn't an arrogance. Because I know there's some fake confidence out there that uh, people like beating their chest and say, look at me, look at me. It's it's uh-huh. a different level of 
uh, different level of confidence. So I'm fascinated with with one thing in terms of the the organisations that use the drive test. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific p- place in the um, in the cycle of bringing an, an onboarding? So the, the I guess the recruitment process mm-hmm. where people use this. Like, do they do it before an interview and use it as a short a short listing mechanism, or do they do it after they've met a candidate and said this sounds great? but I need to get it verified to see whether in fact the person who's been giving me these answers and creating a certain impression is matched by what the drive test is going to tell me. So at what stage of the process do most organizations use this? Great question. Uh, overall, people tend to use, organizations tend to use it toward the beginning of their process. And the exact okay. point at which they use it tends to depend upon the size of the company. So as you can imagine, a very large company that has a requisition where they're hiring hundreds of salespeople per year. We'll take a subscription to the to, to the drive test, and they'll use that as early as they can in the process to help them to vet candidates. We never say that any assessment is the be all end all, but of course they they follow our recommendation of combining the drive test data with the other preliminary data that they have and making a decision all together about how yeah. how to move that person forward. Other companies who are a bit smaller might perhaps start out with say a resume review, perhaps a phone screen thereafter, and then decide whether to choose the assessment. And then in that case, they have three great pieces of data to combine to say, okay, do we bring the person into that one-on-one interview? And if we do, how do we structure that one-on-one interview to make the best use of our time? So those are the typical places people will tend to use always before the interview, but you know, the exact place kind of depends on the size of the company. We never recommend, for example, using an assessment of any kind as the final point, point in the process. You know, Sometimes companies will call and say, you know, Dr. Kerner, we're so frustrated. Uh, we've had candidates who promised us the world in, in, in the past and didn't end up performing. So we, were, we remembered that that had happened previously. We have a new candidate. We're just about to make them an offer. But we thought, you know what? As a last step, we want to administer an assessment. And I'll tell them, no, not now. Uh, in this particular case, just go ahead and do what you were going to do. Stop now and wait till the next time you would bring somebody on board. Don't use the assessment at the end of the process, because generally, if you've been surprised in the past, you're going to be surprised now. And the assessment <laughs> is likely going to surprise you in terms of what you learn. And it's likely going to throw a lot more drama at you in terms of <laughs> in terms of the person scoring lower likely than, uh, than you would ideally like. So wait, use it in your next hire toward the beginning of the process and make sure that the person you're bringing into the interview is a high potential candidate to begin with. That's fascinating because I just reflect on my own experience um, when I made a change, and this is going back 2008, 2009, I mm-hmm. sat down and did a profile and did some cognitive testing, mm-hmm. but it was after two or three interviews. It was almost mm-hmm. like the final stage of the process, which mm-hmm. I find I found interesting. And hence, I, I was just curious because uh, it kind of made sense to me that you would use it up front as a, sure. as a mechanism to try and sift through, the, particularly if you've got a lot of people who have applied, you want to be able to try to identify as quickly as you possibly can the ideal candidates to then take them through a rigorous interview process. Ah, you know, very good point. Sometimes companies will still want to use the assessment a bit later in the process. If they wish to do so, they can, but I always, again, make sure that I strongly recommend that they interview the person and leave the opportunity to interview the person one more time after those results come in, just to clear up any areas, as I alluded to, uh, there might be surprises on the assessment, because generally if the person, if the company is coming to us, having in the past been surprised about people in terms of the the discrepancy between what they say in the interview and how they end up performing, if you will, we know the best predictor of future behavior, as we'll talk about, is previous behavior. And that applies in that case too. So again, my strong recommendation is use it as early in the process as you reasonably can. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Hey, you, you've also mentioned that you've you've put this into thousands of organisations. I'm really curious because there might be people sitting here listening and saying, well, this is great. Um, 
is this, and I'm not sure whether the word is infallible, but is does this guarantee success? Like even though, even if I take people through a process, even if they do the drive tests, and even if they, you know, come out saying this is a a great hunter, this will be a great acquisition. They have these three non-teachable traits in plentiful supply. Mm-hmm. Um, is it still a chance that I can actually not have a good hire? So I'm curious in terms of the the organisations that you've actually worked with and continue to work with. What mm-hmm. sort of results are they seeing? What sort of um, what sort of ROI, for want of a better term, do they do they get? Uh, and I don't want it, I don't want that to sound like a loaded question because I think I know the answer, but um, I think a lot of people listening to this might also think, well, is this is this the elixir is this is this the the key to unlocking potential for salespeople for, for me for my organization good question so we never say as i mentioned that any assessment including the drive test is the be all end all it's one piece of data in the hiring process and when you look at the companies that we've worked with they've consistently found that people who are scoring high in drive particularly when they start working with us you can imagine they want to test their current team they'll say okay let's let's give dr Croner our top few people let's give them the assessment and see what happens and consistently we find that those top individuals tend to score high on, on the, the drive test so showing that again people who are high in, in uh, performance tend to be high uh, in assessment scores and again we found that too when we made sure that in constructing the assessment that we validated it very strongly looking at hundreds of sales people looking at their performance uh, in terms of sales performance and combining that with their their drive test to make sure there was a strong correlation between the two. But even looking at somebody who scores well on the drive test and does well in the behavioral interview, that's still not an absolute guarantee that the person is going to perform well, because at the end of the day, the person's performance really comes down, it's almost like an athlete, comes down to all of the elements of what we might think of as the sales system or the sales ecosystem. Mm. If you will. So there's fit with the company culture, of course, also fit yeah. with the management style, fit with the compensation plan. Uh, and then, of course, there's the person's personality. All those things like an athlete at the end of the day combine to determine how successful that person will ultimately be. In this case, with the drive test and with the drive interview that we talk about in the book, we're essentially looking at raw athletic ability, Darren. How fast can they run? How high can, can they jump? So that's what we essentially you know, teach our, our clients to look for. And that's just one piece of the process. They, then we, again, give them guidance in terms of, okay, in the rest of the hiring process, make sure you're checking all the rest of the boxes, make sure you're doing a good reference check and making sure that you're getting somebody who's a good fit with your company culture, making sure that you're, the person's aligned with your compensation plan and you just you connect well with them and so forth. All those things at the end of the day come together. Again, in this case, we're looking at raw athletic ability. Yeah, and as you were talking about that, it kind of sort of made sense that, it's it's just one piece of the puzzle, but what I'm hearing and what I what I believe, having you know read the book and and had a look at it, is without this, it's it's it potentially leaves a big hole. And if we as sales leaders wanting to, I mean, not not game the system, but but make make a higher a better hire, particularly when you when you think about the cost of onboarding and yes. the cost of people not being a good a good fit. We just can't afford to do that. So if you think yes. about a lot of organizations have high, high attrition rates and a lot of that would, would do to the fact that, you know what, you might have brought in a highly skilled person, but were they a fit to the culture? Was the yep. compensation plan consistent with what they're expecting? And, and do we have other issues that that have been brought to the service as we've onboarded them? Um, I can see that using something like this, you can, as well as combining the cultural piece and the fact that as sales leaders, we've got to create a great environment, you'll be able to lower the attrition rate, build a much higher, more high-performing team. And I'm always talking about sustainability and performance and getting performance to so it's replicable so that 
it's almost consistent performance that it's just doing the same thing over and over again, but not in a bad way. It's in a high performance way. And it just, and I can, I can see intuitively that it would reduce um, attrition and increase results. And another area of ROI, of course, is just the the interviewer's time. You know, we talked about using it early in the the process, making sure that people whom you interviewed are good use of your time. What is your time worth? Uh, And and bringing in those high potential candidates, if you will. And okay, okay, you know, I like to say the well-constructed test is like the x-ray. It allows us to determine, aha, there's something here. Then the well-constructed behavioral interview thereafter is like the CAT scan. That's where we dig down deep and really understand what's going on underneath the surface and what makes that person tick. So a big area, of course, of ROI is just in terms of the interviewer's time, making sure that the time that they spend interviewing is with a high potential candidate. And they're able, you know, to kind of look for, okay, what what are the nuances in terms of underneath the surface? Because I like to look at the test as a bit like having your consumer report, if you will, before you make a major buying decision really says hey buyer beware you know if you're if the person's doing well on drive that's great now let's look at any areas that are being in in the red zone if you will in terms of say relationship skills or organizational skills keeping in mind that we can develop those now we can construct the interview to make sure that we're asking them the right questions and uncovering dynamics now Mm -hmm. going on underneath the surface that we might not otherwise have seen it all before and then no matter what we're going into that new hire with your eyes wide open Absolutely. Absolutely. Which makes it a lot easier and a lot more comfortable as a sales leader to have high levels of confidence that I'm bringing in the right people and I'll be able to deliver. Certainly when I've got to, I've got to deliver outcomes for my senior executives, my vice president of sales, my president of sales, my CEO, I've got to have confidence that I'm going to be able to deliver what I say I'm going to deliver because my, it's my, it's my ghoulies on the line really, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. did I hear you right just before? And you said that there are some organizations that use the drive test on existing people within their organization? Yes. Oftentimes when a company will begin working with us, they'll want to look at their existing team. Okay. So oftentimes that's the case, as you can imagine, when a new sales manager or new sales VP takes over, it's like someone taking over a new sports team, a football team, if you will. They want to determine yeah. you know, where, are the, where are their strengths, where are their opportunities for development. And they'll use the drive test. Uh, on those individuals, particularly uh, they'll want to focus on development. And that's why we have a report called the production builder, which is a developmental report. So for each with the production builder, they get the same scores as they get on the drive test, but then a couple of additional pages of things they can do to mentor or motivate that person, given their unique psychological profile when it comes to those teachable characteristics. So they'll want to understand, you know, what are the opportunities for the team? And certainly they'll look at their existing team kind of to get started, if you will. Nice. Absolutely. Awesome. So in the, um, as we, as we sort of wrap, start to wrap up, are there any other elements to this that is really important for sales leaders to know? We've got the non-teachable traits. We know there's another four or five characteristics that we need to consider as part of building a, a great culture and, and having a good person. As mm-hmm. a sales leader, is there anything else that we need to be conscious of that the report provides, the test provides, or, or based on your experience we need to consider? Oh, sure. Uh, so in terms of what the report can provide uh, is that the distinction between, you know, we talked at the very beginning about can they sell and will they sell? And it's not unusual. You may see a candidate say score, score low on drive and then score strong and say relationship and persuasion. And again, that's the benefit you get with the assessment is you get, you know, the individual, they kind of, they kind of get called out on that. You know, the person who's strong on persuasion relationship who might look great in the interview, but underneath the surface, they don't necessarily have that passion. So that's one of the things the report can show us in terms of uh, my expertise and the guidance that I've been working and giving to, to companies, you know, again, over the last, what, 20 years, 
um, sometimes we get, we get the question, are there key things people can, can remember in terms of the interview process? And there are a few big take, takeaways. Um, one of them is actually when, you know, when you're setting your expectations. It's not unusual, for example, for say a smaller company or a company hiring their very first salesperson to want somebody who's going to start producing for them or start filling the pipeline at least relatively quickly after they're brought on board. So companies might ask, is there anything I should look for in terms mm-hmm. of say a resume or a LinkedIn profile, anything to kind of set expectations? And our broad recommendation in that regard, Darren, is to find somebody Again, if you want somebody who's going to hit the ground running, if you will, or at least as fast as you can reasonably expect, because you always always need to be trained, but somebody with at least two to three years of relevant previous experience at a similarly sized company, as well as an overall drive score on the drive test of a four or a five. Because of course, I say two to three years of relevant experience, that way the person's had sales 101, you wouldn't have to give them that. But I say at a similarly sized company, because of course, sometimes companies can be very tempted by a candidate who's done very well at say a very large company, a great pedigree thinking, okay, this person's done so well at this very big company, surely they must have had world-class sales training, surely they logically will bring that same degree of success to bear for us. And I see you're laughing, you know what I'm going to say, because again, (laughs) the speech at that point is what really led to their success? Was it their own effort? Or was it really the fact that they had all that brand recognition and collateral material that were opening the doors for them? Again, so when you have somebody who's been successful at a similarly sized company, they've dealt with the challenges that are inherent in that role. Now, when you combine that with a person who scores high on drive, a four or a five in the green zone, if you will, on drive, yeah. now you have the person with a passion to execute on that knowledge, if you will. So that tends to be you know, the, the predictor, the, not a perfect correlation, but it does tend to predict that the person's going to score well in that particular role. Yeah, it makes sense. And and I've I've had the benefit of working for some big, well-known Australian companies and the brand that comes with that and the recognition and the ability to at least have somebody who is more receptive to a conversation or to a meeting because you represent that brand is significantly higher than an organization that you say, sorry, who? <laughs> what? I've yep. never heard of you. So you, you've got to have some other other. Uh, tools in your toolkit to be able to overcome that and, and persuade people to say, you know, I'm worth listening to and I've yep. got something of value to share with you. So now that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So as we, uh, as we wrap up, I'd love to know if people are wanting to either get in contact with you uh, or, not, or learn a little bit more about sales, sales drive and particularly the drive test, what's the best uh, course of action for them? How do they reach you and how do they get more information on drive test? Of course, they can go to salesdrive.info where they can request a complimentary assessment. Any of uh, your audience members who are hiring salespeople, it's not it's not for sales candidates to take, but it's for uh, <laughs> Uh, as you can imagine, occasionally we'll get we'll get somebody who'll reach out and say, like, can I take some of these as, as a practice? And again, no, it's really for those who are hiring salespeople. But again, you know, any of your your uh, audience members who are hiring salespeople can absolutely go to salesdrive.info, request a complimentary assessment, and then of course, if they'd like, depending on their position, uh, to find out more about our partner program, I'm always happy to share that with them too. That's all on salesdrive.info. Awesome. And connecting with you on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, absolutely, Dr. Christopher Croner. I'm always happy to connect. Awesome. And I love your photo, mate. I'm going to put your photo on, on the podcast, um, on the podcast platform. And uh, I like the, uh, I like the photo. Very, very uh, professional looking photo. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, just before we finish off any, any last key messages of wisdom to, to sales leaders who are looking to, to hire that perhaps we haven't sure. covered. Um, well, uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, final tips, 
sometimes companies will ask us, do you have, do you have any tips in terms of say, um, how do we get the straight story from, from, uh, from a candidate, for example, that's very clever in the interview that perhaps can obfuscate their answers to us. So for example, you might get a candidate that when you're asking them about uh, what caused them to move from job to job, they might give you vague answers or guarded answers, things like, well, I had some misunderstandings with my supervisor. There's some differences <laughs> of opinion concerning my salary. Many times people will be tempted to just gloss over that when there's a part of you in the back of your mind thinking, wait a minute, there's something going on here. People often think, well, I don't know how to call the person on there or how to ask about it. There's a technique that you can use to get to the truth in that situation. It's called the magic wand question. We talk about it in the book. If you do find the person giving you a guarded answer, the candidate giving you a guarded answer, simply say, okay, if we had a magic wand and we could change three things about that job, so you would have never wanted to leave, what would those three things be? And of course, that's when you start to get a kernel of the truth because you're asking a very difficult question in a very positive way. And they yeah. might say, well, gosh, what would I change? Uh, my assistant wouldn't have quit. I would have gotten paid more. I wouldn't have yelled at the sales VP. They give you something you can start to dig in on. And then, of course, the key at that point is to find other examples of that behavior occurring as well in the past. Because the more consistently we can find a behavior occurring in the past, the more reliably we can predict it will emerge for us as well going forward. So I guess if I could ask your audience members to remember one thing, is that when you combine a well-constructed assessment of drive with the interview techniques that we talked about today, you can absolutely stack your team with high potential championship caliber, high performance, if you will, sales athletes. Massive. And that that helps us drive towards exceptional performance and in the process, allowing the sales leader to become an exceptional sales leader. So um, Dr. Christoph Croner, been an absolute pleasure sharing uh, sharing the platform today. You've brought heaps and heaps of gold. And um, for those listening, do yourself a favor, go to salesdrive.info, request that complimentary assessment. And if you want to find more, please connect with uh, with Chris Croner on LinkedIn. So Chris, thank you so much. I know it's uh, nearly 7 p.m. in Chicago <laughs> right now. So greatly appreciate you uh, you coming on the, on the podcast. And uh, I think we we'll, might have to do this again. Darren, it was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to be of service. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. All the best. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.